Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to another edition of Legal Face Off here on WGN Radio. Tina Martini of McDermott Will and Emery is with us, as is Rich Lenkov from Downey and Lenkov. I'm Andy Mazur, your host. Our first guest today is Professor Stephen D. Schwinn, a professor of law at the University of Illinois, Chicago, since August of 2019. And we'll talk a little bit about the migrant crisis going on here in the city and also now affecting the suburbs. Yeah, Professor, thanks for joining us. Last month, the Chicago City Council approved tougher penalties for bus companies that drop off migrants without notice or outside the city's designated landing zone. The city has said it has issued 95 citations and impounded two buses for violating the rules. Other surrounding municipalities have enacted similar laws. Uh, Do you think that these laws conflict with Illinois or Chicago sanctuary laws? Yeah, thanks, Rich. It's a really good question. So the two things really don't have anything to do with each other for two reasons. First off, the idea of being a sanctuary jurisdiction doesn't mean that a jurisdiction compels itself to accept all migrants or is all welcoming in that sense. It's a common misconception. A sanctuary jurisdiction simply means that officers in the jurisdiction won't communicate with federal immigration authorities in identifying unauthorized non-citizens within the jurisdiction. And so it doesn't really have anything to do with sending migrants from Texas, for example. The two are just a mismatch. The other reason is that a sanctuary jurisdiction says that local officers won't communicate about unauthorized non-citizens. But the migrants coming from the southern border are all authorized. They've applied for for asylum. And so they're in the country completely lawfully. So the sanctuary jurisdiction or the sanctuary status really wouldn't have anything to say about them. So, Professor, what are the responsibilities of these towns and the states to these migrants once they are dropped off? Well, Tina, as a formal legal matter, these jurisdictions don't have any more legal obligation over migrants being dropped off than they have over you or me or anybody else within the jurisdiction. Now, having said that, some of the jurisdictions have taken on a responsibility for these individuals and have allocated money and resources to help them to provide services and housing and the like. And so to the extent that they've held out these services, they do have an obligation to help them. Professor, last month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill into law that would let police, local police, arrest migrants who cross the border illegally. This week, the Justice Department sued Texas, uh, reportedly saying that Texas cannot run its own immigration system. Is immigration strictly under the purview of the federal government? Rich, as a general matter, the federal government has plenary authority 
authority over immigration matters. What that means is the federal government gets to set the rules on immigration and gets to enforce the rules on immigration. Now, in many instances, the federal government voluntarily cooperates with state enforcement officers in immigration enforcement, but that's a purely voluntary arrangement. If a jurisdiction like a sanctuary jurisdiction, for example, doesn't want to cooperate with federal officials, the federal government can't compel them to do that. Now, having said all that, the new provision in Texas, this SB4, makes it a Texas law that says a Texas crime to cross the border without authorization and then authorizes state court judges to deport individuals who have violated those provisions. The problem with that is that federal immigration law does exactly the same thing. It makes it a federal crime to enter the country without authorization and gives the authority to specialized judges to determine deportation for individuals who have done so. And so the federal government preempts, in the language of our constitutional law, preempts Texas's state law and says that that law is completely invalid. So, Professor, how do you think we can best strike a balance between the influx of migrants into cities that have significant underserved communities that they're already grappling with? You know, that's a great question, and we hear a lot about this, right? Resources are limited, so jurisdictions have to decide how to allocate those resources between their own needy citizens and incoming migrants. And this really is a crisis for many jurisdictions, as we're seeing in Chicago and the suburbs right now. How do they make those kinds of decisions? Well, that's really what we're struggling with. But in my view, what's key to this is some kind of coordinated effort between governors at the border, like Governor Abbott, for example, and and cities like Chicago or other sanctuary jurisdictions so that we can provide a kind of coordinated pipeline, coordinated service uh, provision for individuals who are coming to the United States and seeking asylum. Professor Schwinn, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us here on Legal Faceoff. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with y'all. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com. And welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Our next guest is Amanda Vinicky from WTTW's Chicago Tonight, where she's a correspondent for the popular show. And Amanda is back for another year to talk to us about the new laws that have gone into effect on January 1. 
It's Anna, a- welcome back. It's an annual event having you back on the show to talk about the new laws in Illinois. We're really happy to have you. This has become a tradition here on Legal Face Off. We're, we're thrilled to have you back. I'm glad to be here. Wish that we had some champagne. We should really add that to the festivities. <laughs> Next year, for sure. We know that you uh, stepped out of a press conference there uh, as part of your regular gigs. We appreciate it. We'll get through some of these quickly. So we picked a few. The first one is uh, dealing with fuzzy dice, which might seem like sort of a funny uh, law, but it actually has some serious implications behind this. Explain to us, Silent, please. So we all know the fun things that folks hang from their rearview mirrors, uh, but your, your, your dash mirrors, you're, you're not supposed to do that, in fact, per Illinois law. And actually, under the new law, you're still not supposed to, uh, because that can cause a safety hazard. The difference being, now you're really less likely to get in trouble for that. The thinking being that there were a lot of folks and we've had a lot of great reporting actually and studies and uh, a previous law that was sponsored by long before he was president Obama that really tracks when folks are pulled over and why. And the notion being that a lot of people of color are pulled over at exorbitant rates and that sometimes the thought is that law enforcement will use something like, oh, we see something hanging from your mirror to pull somebody over. So now it is still illegal. You're not supposed to do it, but police cannot pull you over solely for that Great. So Amanda, tell us about um, House Bill 2789, which is... It touches on the state grant funds for public libraries and the banning of books. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah, this is actually also an initiative of Secretary of State Alexi Janulius' first year in that position and really trying to make a lot of it, gained a lot of headlines with this one because it becomes the first, what has been touted as the first national ban on book bans. What essentially it does is say that Illinois will not give any grant money to libraries that ban books for partisan or any sort of any real other reason. Um, And so there we go. We don't know. It's still pretty fresh whether any libraries are enacting bans or reversed them in order to get that state money. But again, this is one that received a lot of national attention because we are at a time, of course, where we're seeing a lot of libraries and particularly in schools take that measure. Yeah, generally, the Secretary of State uh, in Illinois is not known to be a tremendous legislative body, but perhaps Mr. Julius has some eyes on higher office down the road. Um, I think so. Yeah. The next one deals with something that perhaps, unfortunately, we've all been guilty of. I know I have in this post-COVID uh, era. We are all Zooming. We're all doing WebEx. You're doing this from wherever you are, which is great uh, use of technology, but you're no longer allowed to do that while driving. Yes, I'm doing this in a, a public building. If you hear any music or people vibing around, I am uh, speaking with you via Zoom, but I'm not doing it behind the wheel. I have to say that in covering uh, lawsuits and court hearings and such throughout the pandemic, there were a couple of times and even you know legislative committee hearings, I saw lawmakers literally driving while zooming have seen attorneys do it before a judge um not sure that was ever a good idea but now it spells out that that is illegal not just zooms or teams but also social media so don't snapchat don't tweet don't do any of those while you are driving kids so amanda house bill 3326 touches on license plate reader cameras and tracking out-of-state people seeking abortion care tell us more about it 
Chinolius again. See, uh, and I do think that as we talk about new laws, uh, there are some that are geared towards such really you know specific sectors. But most people drive. If you're not, at least then you're a passenger. And so these rules of the road really do have wide impact. This is one that says, uh, as we're seeing more of these license plate readers, uh, just with technology getting updated, and so it is a measure that law enforcement is using to crack down on carjackings and other sorts of crimes. They cannot, however, be used under this new law to punish folks, let's say, who, or to be used in any sort of um, hearing if, let's say, somebody is coming to Illinois from a state that bans abortion and is coming to Illinois to get that procedure. It can't be used as evidence. Illinois isn't going to turn over, nor law enforcement that are uh, based in this state going to be able to turn over information from uh, those license plate readers to be able to prosecute, persecute, uh, some would say, individuals for that reason, or also immigration status. And another, uh, this one said a bill turning to the Senate 40 uh, on the first day of the Chicago Auto Show. We know the uh, some of the hottest Cars that will be displayed there deal with electric vehicles. This one mandates that any newly constructed single-family homes in Chicago, or in Illinois, I should say, have EV charging stations. That seems a bit of a surprise because of the relatively still low percentage of overall cars that are electric being sold. Yeah, I actually just got a ride from somebody for the first time in a Rivian truck. And let me tell you, it was schmancy. I was a bit confused. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I should be in, admitting this on a podcast, but uh, i confused about how to open the door. The handles are sort of like automatic, but you have to touch something first and then they go out sideways. Anyway, um, I, I, the hope is certainly that these are going to become more and more common, at least according to state legislators who have enacted policies to uplift the electric vehicle industry, both in terms of manufacturing here and tax credits that go to individuals who follow some pretty strict guidelines in terms of what cars they might buy that are EV equipped. Um, this does not require that new buildings have them, but they have to at least be capable of having those chargers installed. Otherwise, developers could face having to pay civil penalty penalties. Um, pretty low. I think it starts at about $500, but certainly the notion is to make this easy on folks so that if you are a renter, if you are a homeowner, if you're going into new construction, then don't make it difficult for an EV charger to be placed. So let's talk real quick about Senate Bill 208, which uh, touches on mandating uh, paid time off, which folks don't seem to ever think they get enough of. I'm not sure there is any such thing as enough time off, uh, both for vacation and as a, a new mom already. I'm realizing this, but I am somebody who has a job and I'm lucky to have an employer that you know gives me um, paid time off for vacation if I am to get sick. I think this is very much a lesson that we learned during the pandemic that you don't want people coming to work when they are ill because they can't afford to not have their fear of, fearful of getting fired or some such when they're sick and can spread that illness. And so um, in, in part with that thinking in mind, Illinois is now mandating uh, it, it's 40 hours in a 12-month period, you accrue it. So a worker does not right off the bat receive 40 hours. You have to do that as time comes. It, Illinois has now this statewide law. Uh, the Chicago law is stricter and Cook County has its own mandatory paid leave but this is now a statewide policy and one that um, business was pretty much on board with, actually. 
Man, if you're like me, you're a sucker for every advertisement that offers some free trial of the latest app, the latest subscription. You click on yes, and then, of course, you forget to cancel it after that 30-day period expires. Then you're saddled with months or years of a subscription that you don't need and don't want. Dude, I have so many razors. I joined some sort of online razor club, and I generally believe in shop local, but yes, they totally... Monthly licorice, yeah, monthly licorice clubs, all sorts of nonsense. <laughs> well, there's a new law that requires uh, uh, notice, right, so that consumers maybe could cancel that in time. Yeah, and so really, what it does is this is an automatic renewal regulation, and what it does is really force companies to be more upfront about disclosing the terms of those contracts. If it's going to be auto renewed, they're supposed to tell you when that will be, how you can cancel it, not make it so that it's sort of on the sly. And as you noted, um, I do think this is something that is clearly becoming popular and companies are having a lot of success with, hence Illinois jumping in. I'm guessing there were a lot of complaints lodged with the attorney general's office about people having issues like an explosion of razors, licorice, wine, makeup, what have you, magazines, jewelry, the list goes on. So tell us about Senate Bill 1715, which is all about drinking fountains and water bottle filling stations. You know, I'm a reporter, so I try to stay objective with laws. Um, I will say that I I do have a favorite one, and I'm very upfront that that smoke-free Illinois no longer allowing smoking indoors is like my favorite law that has ever passed. This is another one that um, I... Do not know. I'm not a building developer, so I'm not sure on the cost of it. But I have to say, just as a consumer, I love. And that is whenever you, you know, when you're you're thirsty, right? And I try and be environmental and don't use these plastic water bottles that we now know through new reporting have all these nanoparticles of plastic inside them. But you have nowhere to fill up your water bottle. This requires that if there is a drinking fountain, which, sorry, I've seen kids at the Capitol like stick their tongues all over them, gross. This says if you have one of those, you also have to have one of those more, in my opinion, far more sanitary bottle filling stations. It's not like you're going to see them popping up everywhere right away. Again, this is just for new construction and under wherever in the Illinois plumbing code. So a lot of, you know, public places, thinking parks, schools, things like that. If you're going to be installing and are required to have a water fountain, you also have to have one of these bottle filling stations. Thank God, Amanda, someone on this show, after almost 10 years, finally referenced the Illinois Plumbing Code. It's, uh, <laughs> it's something we've been... Attorney with that is their expertise, right? The big oversight that we haven't had that discussion before. L- lastly, our favorite new law... got time. You can make this happen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's always some wild and wacky laws. You know, Illinois people don't realize, north of... Um, of, of what, 55 here, that there's a rural part of Illinois, a whole other part of Illinois that uh, these laws cover as well. And they often deal with issues that urbanites like ourselves don't have to deal with. There's one new law that deals with unfettered access to bears and other non-human primates. It really is. Uh, that finally. Right? Yeah. Unfettered access. How, how often do you have access? When's the last time you saw a bear out and about? Now, I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that the legislators finally made my access uh, unfettered. You know, you know, I hate when my access to bears are fettered. 
Uh, you know, this actually is something that I believe the Humane Society had been working on for a couple of years um, and is part of a larger effort. Um, State Senator Linda Holmes is really big into prevention of animal cruelty and animal rights. And so this is one where um, I, I guess we can blame all the folks who really love selfies for this, um, where you have evidently uh, companies or folks that have bears or other primates, things that are photogenic and folks want to take a snap with them. And then that becomes a greater issue because where do they go? Then they're um, in zoos or circuses or what have you, even circuses. I think circuses back and no longer with any animals. So where do they go? This bans all of that. So no more um, easy access to bears or um, non-human primates for selfies or any other reason. Well, Amanda, we're glad we have unfettered access to you and uh, this segment again with uh, our new laws coming into effect here in uh, January 1st. And thank you so much for your time. Cheers to each of you. Happy 2024 and follow those laws or else. And welcome back here to Legal Faceoff. We're going to talk a lot the dangers of cyberbullying and find out how some are trying to combat this issue. Our guests are Rob and Rose Bronstein, founding board members of Buckets Over Bullying, a nonprofit organization created to honor their son's legacy by standing up to cyberbullying. We appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. We were very honored to have you, Rose, appear on our show last August to discuss the very difficult topic of cyberbullying. We really appreciate both you and Rob joining us again today. And for those of our listeners who may not have had the chance to hear our interview from a few months back, we're coming up on the second year anniversary of the loss of your son, Nate, to suicide after he had been tormented by cyberbullying. In 2022, you filed a lawsuit against the Lanton School of Chicago, which is the school that your son attended, as well as against some of the school's administrators and some families of Nate's classmates. This lawsuit is a public record, um, and on, we understand because it's ongoing litigation that you're not able to comment on it. So for those of our listeners who are interested in reading more about it, they can um, Google it and, and find more information about that lawsuit. Can you both please tell us a bit more about Nate, particularly for those of our listeners who may not have had the chance to listen to the interview from August? Uh, Nate was a sophomore at the Latin School of Chicago when this happened. Um, he was 15 years old at the time. Um, he's a super bright kid. He had lots of friends. He loved sports. He did well in school. Um, he just had a great personality, a great sense of humor, and just love and joy just always came out of his soul. Just a really, really great kid. Yeah, and, and um, he loved all sports, um, and he loved to play them. He loved to watch them. He was encyclopedic about trivia and data, loved fantasy sports. But the, the sport that he definitely loved above all else was, was basketball, which is why buckets over bullying, while it uses sports generally, it's obviously very much focused on basketball. And, and while, while I won't get into any particulars 
On the litigation, I do want to tell the why, because um, and I know we're going to get into just what a crisis cyberbullying is, but the why that my wife and I are out there and we're involved in advocacy, we're involved in lawmaking, but we're also involved in our particular case in litigation because holding people responsible who need to be held responsible is one of the key ways that this is going to change. So yes, your your listeners are welcome to read what's available publicly and to keep up to date on it. But the why is what matters the most to us because unless and until schools and adults and others who, who failed our kids are held accountable in every way, including financially and and in, in, in just you know sort of being put under the microscope, it's not going to change. Well, picking up on that point, um, Rob, what what role do you see, and would you like to see schools have with regards to fighting cyberbullying? They have a big role, and um, they have a big role because, like it or not, the school day extends 24-7. And when kids go on break and they go on vacation with their families, they're sleeping with the you know phone next to them on their pillow. And, and the communications they have with their fellow students literally don't end. And, 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 and we've talked to a lot of school administrators who say in great frustration, they spend a big chunk of every day just putting out fires that erupted on social media from the day before. Um, and so like it or not, this is a huge issue. This is how these kids communicate. It's not going to change. Um, my wife and I feel very strongly that um, smartphones should not be allowed on during the school day, which is nothing we could talk about. But regardless, they will definitely be on it at, at, at night. Um, and so one of the ways that we think um, schools can get ahead of it is through educating the students and their parents. So for our, we, we've done all we can. We brought in to Chicago and actually to the Chicago area, a group out of Los Angeles called the Organization for Social Media Safety. And they have excellent state-of-the-art curriculum for students and for their parents from sixth to 12th grade. Um, and initially, we funded the costs just to catalyze it. And thankfully, what happened is word of mouth very quickly spread to the point that we've now already done in-person education for 4,000 Chicago area students in the past uh, 12 months. They are very heavily booked up for the coming year. Their phone is now they're getting inbound calls from schools. And the thing that we're particularly excited about is they very recently received grants in Los Angeles and in Miami to replicate the success in Chicago. And, and so anyhow, so educating, educating the, 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 the children themselves and the, the teens and the preteens and educating their parents is by, by no means is it, um, uh, the full solution, but obviously it's going to play a very critical role and it can't be a one time thing. It needs to become part of the curriculum in our schools as long as there's social media, which is probably forever. So Robin Rose, last May, you announced a partnership with Larry Disparty and his law firm Disparty Law. Um, how has that partnership progressed since we last spoke with you? It's it's actually going quite well. Um, my understanding is we've already, or they, Disparty Law Firm, who's their attorney, has already helped over two dozen families uh, who have been in crisis regarding bullying and cyberbullying. And one really exciting thing that's happened since then is Disparty was approached by Loyola University Law School, who asked if them and their students could participate. And so that partnership is up and running too now. Talk to us about um, 
the some of the statistics that we can find on the buckets over bullying website um, that so alarmingly portray the crisis of cyberbullying um, in our country today and, and, and how it's gotten worse. Uh, yeah, so um, the statistics that we've collected here in Chicago through our work with the Organization for Social Media Safety, uh, we have found that 43% of Chicago youth self-report having been cyberbullied, and that is about 10% above the national average, um, which again, I mean, think about it, that's four out of 10 children who are self-reporting. That's just what's being reported. That's the largest cases that we know of. Um, and in the schools that I've been in Chicago, when students are asked, uh, how often do you see violence on social media? Uh, most of the time, it's 90% or higher of the students self-reporting that they're seeing violence online. So that violence, they're being desensitized to it and it's being normalized in their brains and they're seeing it on, on their social media apps and they're swiping by. And then they're taking that behavior and replicate it among themselves with, with the cyberbullying. Uh, we also know that when students are asked about seeing hate speech online, they are almost most of the time self-reporting 100% of students are self-reporting seeing hate speech online. Uh, you can't get any worse than this. Um, we also ask students about being a bystander which means when they see their peers or classmates being bullied or cyberbullied, they stand back and just watch it happen rather than report it to get help. And that number always stands um, around 80% or higher. And what we're hearing from feedback from students is that they're afraid to get involved because they don't want to be considered a snitch or a tattletale, or they fear that they'll be retaliated against. And when we're in schools with OFSMS, we're trying to explain to them that if you go and report that you're seeing a child being abused or attacked online, you're actually helping your classmate get out of trouble. You're actually helping to save someone or even potentially save their life versus the perspective that they have as children that they're going to get that person in more trouble or get themselves in trouble. So we're trying to change that narrative with the student perspective. And also we want to raise that awareness to our parents that they need to have this conversation with their children at home, the importance of helping out a fellow student when they see that they're being attacked online. And the reason why this really hits me so hard is because this is what happened to our son, Nate. He was being cyberbullied on a text thread and on Snapchat and not one single student. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students who were seeing these posts. Not a single student had the wherewithal to report it to an adult while it was happening. If that would have happened, I can attest to you that our son would still be here because somebody, someone, my husband and I, we could have intervened and protected him, but nobody said a word. And that is that seems to be the theme over and over again in many of these tragedies when so many children are being lost to suicide because of cyberbullying, because nobody is reporting it. Everyone is staying quiet. So and if you could, sorry, if you could give examples of what's happened when we've done the in-school education, almost invariably a student will come up to you or one of the educators. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, like clockwork. Uh, at the end of a presentation in school, I always have a child come up to me and report 
a social media harm that they have experienced. Most of the time it is cyberbullying. And after they see that presentation, something resonates with them that they actually now feel compelled to report it. It's usually self-reporting. It's a child that's being attacked and it's just heartbreaking. Um, there's just no words. Usually I end up crying um, just out of sadness uh, that this, this is just going on all the time. And um, thankfully though, I'm glad it's just an, it's just a testament that, the, that these conversations are resonating with our children um, and then what happens is I'll take that student to the administrator, to a social worker, and then they work it out from there. Um, same thing that happens to children will then go to the presenter and they will share with him um, uh, thoughts about, you know what, after I saw this presentation, I didn't realize that what I was doing is actually cyberbullying. So that is where I see how important this curriculum is, because even if each student can take away one thing from this, one key learning moment from that, to me, I feel like then we're starting to make an impact. Just one last really quick question here on Legal Faceoff. Through the wonderful work you've been doing, as emotional and difficult as it's been, you've been creating awareness about this topic that I, it, it seems has had a real impact, at least in certain geographies. Can you give us a couple of quick examples of lawsuits and other things that have happened over the past few months since we last spoke to you? Um, yes, one lawsuit that I think has will has created major impact is um, the tragedy that the Grossman family had experienced uh, there in New Jersey. They lost their son, Mal their daughter, I'm sorry, excuse me, their daughter, Mallory Grossman, at the age of 12 to suicide after she was viciously cyberbullied by classmates. And um, I believe it was either a five or six year court battle. Uh, they sued the school district and administrators. And um, right before they were about to go to trial, the school offered to settle with them for $9.1 million. And um, there is no price tag that you can put on a child. I speak to Diane Grossman, Mallory's mother, very frequently, and it doesn't change the horrors um, that her she and her family have had to experience since then. But she and I both feel strongly and agree that hopefully this will start to send a message to schools and school administrators that this is not something that can be ignored, that this is a serious epidemic and that we are losing children at the negligence of school districts and school administrators. And, and sorry, if I could talk about a different type of litigation, and that is there's there's both civil lawsuits against the social media platforms, and there's been two significant cases in the last few months that have survived motions to dismiss on um, Section 230 immunity, which is a very, very big deal that now plaintiffs are getting through that, which opens up the platforms to all sorts of liability. But secondly, and it's something that so my wife and I are, are really have been honored to to become friends with uh, our Attorney General Kwame Raoul, who's a national leader in online safety, and he was central to bringing together forty two state attorneys general to sue uh, Meta and several other platforms a couple months ago. Um, and I actually asked him at the time. I said, "How how frequent is it that this many state attorney generals from obviously both sides of the aisle?" 
can come together on an issue. And he said, honestly, this is a once every maybe decade kind of thing. It's opioids, it's vaping. It's really some of the biggest issues that the state attorneys general who are charged with consumer protection, protecting their citizens, that just everyone can see what a problem it is. And and there's just these failures. And so um, it'll be interesting to see. um, Well, it's more than interesting. It's critical to see that, that that lawsuit advances and hopefully expands to some of the other platforms as well. Rose and Rob, thank you so much for taking the time and the best of luck to you guys uh, and your organization. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. And welcome back on Legal Faceoff. Time now for the Legal Grab Bag. Our guest today, Tony Rosari, who's been the Director of Business Operations since 2012 for the law firm of Callahan & Fusco. He's also credited with helping grow that firm to what it is today. And Ross Gorin, partner at Weber Gallagher in Philadelphia. Since 2022, Ross has been included in the Pennsylvania edition of Super Lawyers Magazine as a rising star. Let's go ahead and get to our first topic here, folks, and let's talk a little bit about former President Donald Trump, who is in court again, arguing presidential immunity in a federal case against him. It would be the central legal story of maybe the decade, Tina, but with Trump, you're seeing unprecedented legal um, you know, uh, stories every single day. This one uh, involves Trump yesterday being in court um, where his attorneys were arguing the immunity uh, defense that he cannot be prosecuted for acts that he performed uh, while president. He cannot be prosecuted criminally. And by all accounts, I mean, I listened to a lot of the argument. This is a federal appeals court, three, three, uh, three judges, two of them appointed by Democrats, one appointed by George W. Bush. They were both pretty skeptical is a generous term uh, when questioning Trump's attorneys, mostly because his arguments don't really make a lot of sense. Basically, he's saying in so many words that the president is above the law. Um, and that's all based not on the Constitution or based on case law. It's based on a memo, right, a Pentagon memo from several decades ago where they decided that they would not uh, prosecute a president for criminal acts incurred while he was president. A couple of interesting takeaways. Um, you know, when this issue was raised during impeachment, the argument of the Republicans, particularly Mitch McDonnell, he said, well, you know, the remedy is prosecution once Trump leaves office. You know, that was the party line back then. Now Trump has left office and he at least is arguing that, well, forget what we said, you know, a couple of years ago, I can't be prosecuted. Number one. Number two, 
if presidents cannot be prosecuted once they leave office, then why did Gerald Ford pardon Richard Nixon once he left office? Remember, Richard Nixon resigned in the wake of the Watergate scandal. And, you know, Gerald Ford went on TV just a week later and said, our long national nightmare is over. If there was no chance of prosecuting Nixon, that former president, criminally, then why the need for the pardon? That's among the many reasons why I think this court will um, not grant immunity. It'll make its way to the Supreme Court eventually, and I think they will dismiss it as well. But who knows, given the current makeup of that of that body? I, I agree, Rich. Great job sort of, you know, giving us a synopsis of everything. I mean, obviously, he understands he, meaning former President Trump, sees this as a very pivotal issue, right? Because it's going to have a cascading effect. Depending on what happens here, it's going to directly impact his ability to be elected and everything that flows from that. So, um, I mean, there's been a lot written about if this, and I think we're assuming when it gets to the Supreme Court, what the different um, sorts of arguments will be and what the likelihood is of them succeeding. We could spend hours talking through them, but I agree with you that um, to call the judges skeptical of the arguments raised is being very generous. Well, I think that's all true. And, and Ross, I think by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, this one might be an easier one to deny than the argument that Trump should be left off various ballots, right? The, the Colorado case where Trump has been kicked off the ballot there for violating, per that state, the 14th Amendment, uh, that has been accepted by the Supreme Court. That probably will be decided fairly quickly. I think this case involving immunity, even though the court is incredibly conservative, uh, I think they will not find in favor of Trump on that one. I don't think it'll be close. On this one, though, I do think there's lots of reasons that the court will find that Trump should not have been kicked off that ballot in Colorado. So I, I agree with you. I think that the the immunity issue, presidential immunity issue is a lot cleaner and easier for the court to get, you know, say, hey, no, you, you're not immune. And plus, I mean, the policy that that would set if they don't. For the, the ballot, the Colorado ballot issue, I mean, it's a lot more complicated for them. And it's also like a, a heated political t- issue right there that could really have effects socially and across the country. And even after any uh, election results, that's a big thing, right? Because the court's got to look at it several different things in in this, you know, insurrection clause with about like whether it's self-executing, you know, whether or not he qualifies because it doesn't really list president ex- exactly, you know, how do they handle that? How do they kind of leave unscathed without, you know, really creating some big unrest, which I mean, no matter how they rule, I feel like there's just going to be some, uh, you know, news and and public and social battle going on with this whole issue. Tony, we cover these stories all the time. We love them. I can't get enough. You know, uh, Ross mentioned he, 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 he is done with these stories. I can't get enough of them. I listen to every podcast and read every story I can because it's fascinating legally. But does anyone care, right? I mean, Trump is leading the Republican race by, you know, what, upwards of 40 points. He's going to be the nominee. Does anyone out there really care? And is anyone following all of these different cases the way sometimes we do? Well, I think it's just in your face. And the more this lingers on and goes on, the more publicity um, that goes on for Trump. And I guess any publicity for him is is good publicity. So um, being uh, the topic of conversation, no matter if you're for 
against wherever your political stance is. Um, you're seeing him and you're seeing the stories continue to unfold um, with him being the center of the spotlight. So um, whether you care or not, you're going to hear about it. Yeah, let's move along to our next topic here. We'll call this one Nevermind Again, a lawsuit over the <laughs> iconic photo of the naked baby on Nirvana's Nevermind is back after it was previously dismissed. Yeah, Andy. So as our listeners know, over the past year plus, we've been talking about this story, um, which is about Spencer Alden, who was the four-month-old baby photographed for the very famous cover of Nirvana's album, Nevermind. Um, he is now 32. And um, looking back at the day when his dad was paid $200 for the photo that was taken by a friend of his who is a photographer. Um, Spencer filed the lawsuit over use of the photo, alleging that it constitutes child pornography. And over a year ago, that lawsuit was ultimately dismissed, um, mainly for statute of limitations issues. It's now been revived by an appeals court that has ruled that each republication of the album cover showing the picture could be considered a new personal injury particularly with the recent republication of that photo for the 30th anniversary of the album's release. This finding helps Eldon sidestep the statute of limitations issue. Interestingly, the three-judge panel went on to say, in clarifying in a footnote, that this ruling has nothing to do with whether the album art is child pornography and that this is not an issue in this appeal. A lawyer for Nirvana said that while they are um, not happy about this procedural snafu, that they are going to continue to defend the case with vigor and that they expect to prevail. So, Rich, can't say I'm terribly surprised given the coverage we've done on this story before. Um, you know, I think this guy just wants a payout. And the question is whether he's got one coming his way. Enough of this guy. I mean, I remember, like, this guy who is alleging that he is the victim of this cover used the cover himself to make money over the years. And when he could no longer do so, decided to turn around and sue over it. It's, it's nonsense. And, and, you know, Tony, this is why we can't have nice things. This is why this is one of the most iconic album covers of all time. Right. I mean, this is harkens back to the days when albums were really cool and people spent a lot of time designing the covers. These days, you don't have that anymore. And I blame this guy because, you know, of stupid lawsuits like this. What say you, Tony? Rich, you must have a T-shirt with this album cover on it. I, I can see you wearing that. Yeah, see it. So, I mean, you know, people are still, uh, it's iconic. And I don't think it's going to change. And it's, you know, it's it's out already. I don't know how you're going to really put this one back in. Um, you know, the intent of the cover, I don't think, was malicious. And um, this is going to carry on. But um, I think it's already impacted everyone. and. Yeah, it should just go away. Ross, what uh, you you were uh, a younger man when this album? I remember this album. This was in your wheelhouse. My brother bought this this album. He introduced me to Nirvana. It's great. It smells like Teen Spirit. Teen Spirit here. <laughs> I just I can't believe this guy is still going after this. He just wants a quick buck, which is like, you know, how long are you going to take this and and let this go on? Realistically, like who? What are, we, what are we doing here? At this point, I'm also surprised of Nirvana, you know, the, the attorneys from Nirvana and everyone going like, all right, here's a thousand dollars. Please go away. All right, let's head on to our uh, next topic here and talk about the Vegas Leaper who was sentenced. It was the man who attacked mm -hmm. the judge in a Nevada courtroom, sentenced by the same judge that he attacked. 
Yeah, I mean, everyone saw this video. Um, you know, this guy uh, leaped over the bench in Vegas and attacked the judge while she was in the middle of sentencing him. Uh, on Monday, uh, he appeared back in her same courtroom. You know, pretty quick recovery by her. Um, and she sentenced him to four years in state prison from uh, an attempted battery charge dating to last year. Uh, she said that it, it it wasn't compounded by the attack. Hard to believe, though, that she wasn't a little pissed off, you know. Uh, and the guy came in this time, you know, whereas, you know, the security was rather lax the first time. Let's just say that uh, this time he came he came looking like Hannibal Lecter. Right. He had get uh, his hands and come better. Even though they were bound, they also felt the need to put it on some kind of restraining device. Beyond that, like these big mitten-looking things. And he was also wearing a spit mask. Um, so a uh, little bit better security this time. He was also surrounded by about 15 of the biggest-looking deputies I've ever seen, um, as opposed to the first time when this guy just was allowed to jump over you know, the table and then the bench and attack this poor judge. So uh, glad to see security was improved at the courthouse. I agree, Rich. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because it seems like this person was known to be mentally ill. And you would think that in light of that, um, there had to be some indication that he was probably at least somewhat violent. And to your point, Rich, you would think that they would have been better prepared the first time around um, and would have taken extra precautions to make sure that the judge and others in the courtroom were not at a heightened risk as they clearly were based on what happened. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ross, you saw this video. You've been in court, as I have many times. You know, we often deal with litigants who are upset, who are um, unhappy. Uh, obviously, this touches on a growing problem of attacking uh, court, uh, you know, court personnel, including judges. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, that video was insane. Uh, also, that guy got up high. I'll give you that much there. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I try and put this in the shoes of of everyday types of things. And I kind of want to go back to to what you were saying, Christina, about like better, being better prepared. There's so many of these types of people every day that come in and this never happens. You know, this is like the one off thing. It happens, right? Like, and you don't expect it. You have your, your security in there. You have one officer in there. And that's it. This kind of popped off. It got the attention of the world. And you know, they're going to have um, they're going to have 15 guards there. They're going to have everyone there in heightened security. You know, this is but this is the reality of every day, especially in criminal court. Right. Like where you have dangerous people and they're getting sentenced to prison years and years and years that effectively ruins their life. I mean, but it's a risk that we all kind of think about. I've had times where I've been intimidated by people. Never forget. There was a guy suing one of my clients. He was an ex uh, MMA, like mixed martial arts teacher. He was a bodyguard. Um, and literally when I, after I cross examined him, he and his attorney, we were talking in a close space, gets closer and closer to me to the point his attorney's like, okay, you may want to move away, but this is, this is the stuff we deal with. And in our industry, we're dealing with some of this stuff, but you know, it's, this was the time where, where it got the attention of the world. Tony, better security probably at the court. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely better security in the court. I mean, look, he jumped over a table and then the cross body block over the top of, you know, onto the judge. That was pretty 
pretty wild. Um, so, uh, you know, going forward, are they going to put in different rules? Is there going to be like a, a shield or something in front of the judge? Um, probably could use some training in the court too, because some of the, uh, some of the tactics being used behind the bench to uh, subdue him were not exactly the best either after reviewing on video. So um, all of those things could probably help us in the future. You know, the story that's been making the rounds, I'm sure everyone's seen the in-flight incident with Alaska Airlines. Uh, offering passengers now on the flight uh, in which that an extra emergency or blew off the aircraft at 16,000 feet. The airline now offering some of those passengers some cash. Yeah, I mean, speaking of another video that went viral, obviously we've all seen the hole, the gaping hole on the side of the Alaska Airlines plane that, like you said, Andy, sucked out uh, iPhones. By the way, I read an article this morning about how that iPhone survives. Someone found the door, but also the phone. I should say it's an iPhone. They haven't identified the phone yet, but but somehow the phone survived that fall. And there were physicists and engineers discussing how it's even possible for a phone to survive at that and that uh, from that kind of fall. But anyway, um, yeah, a lot of things were sucked out that the teenager's T-shirt got, got sucked out. And that's relevant to one of the issues from a legal perspective, Tina, that, that's so interesting here is there's definite liability, right? I mean, there's no question something went wrong here. Something went terribly wrong. By some accounts, the four bolts holding that door in place weren't tightened properly, um, which is nuts, right? But, uh, you know, they think that $1,500 per pastor is going to make things go away. Uh, they're in. They're in for a rude awakening. I mean, this. Uh, there already inevitably have been hundreds of lawyers descending on these people, uh, trying to sign them up. There are attorneys who do nothing but, you know, airline uh, airline litigation and to literally make their careers on incidents like this. And as a defense lawyer who's defended some of those kind of cases before, you know, I look at them with some skepticism. In this case, however, I mean, there's no question that there is some merit to some trauma claims, right? You might not have a physical damage, thank God, but the idea that you were sitting there for a while, about half hour, um, navigating the skies with a hole in the side of the uh, uh, of the plane, that would be very horrifying. And, and, and there is some liability and exposure for the airline here. Yeah, Rich. I mean, I think, first of all, it's a miracle that no one died, right? I mean, it, it's just crazy what happened here. And we could spend hours unpacking the potential liability here. I mean, I think the fact of the matter is, and I've actually studied airline disasters in my prior life before being a lawyer. And so, you know, you've got several potential avenues to explore in terms of who's ultimately responsible. I think it's a multifaceted answer. But the fact that you have these bolts that were loose, it really just sort of you know, pops out here that it's a maintenance issue. Like, why wasn't this caught? I mean, we all fly a lot and have had a number of flights canceled, delayed, et cetera, for what we are told are maintenance issues. Um, the fact that something as critical as a door, that if it fails, could leave a gaping hole in the side of the plane, you would think that in, in the whole roster of maintenance to be done on a plane, that this would be towards the top of the list to make sure that, you do everything you can so that you don't have a catastrophic failure of this part. Tony, uh, there's been reporting now that uh, this manufacturer of the door plug, it's actually the plug, uh, has been alleged to be aware of this defect just a month before. December 19th, there was a lawsuit filed uh, alleging that they were aware of this issue uh, and failed to remedy it. So that that's going to be a problem. 
Totally. And um, I know that there's been some impact with United and, you know, flying out of Newark all the time. I'm interested to see how that impacts my flight schedule coming up. Um, I've been on that runway a million times for maintenance issues. It seems like it's almost every flight that something happens, whether it's a restroom or, you know, someone's middle console doesn't close right. So uh, missing something like this, especially with previous notice, um, is puzzling and, and you know, it's, it's a real concern. So uh, interested to see how this plays out. I mean, I think I've gotten more than 1500 uh, for for compensation for for flights um, that haven't involved a door blowing off. So uh, I'd be offended, too. Hey, Ross, it might make you spend the extra 25 bucks to uh, splurge for the seat selection next time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, like, I, I'm also just baffled how they thought 1500 was going to make this go away, especially when, like, belongings were sucked out the door. The kid's shirt was taken off the door. And I read something about like uh, there was a passenger was texting her parents like I'm pray for me I, I may not make it like honestly if I'm Alaska I'm like all right here you go lifetime you know uh, you know awards points here you go every every year just <laughs> I mean it's absurd it's a traumatic incident I you know I'm curious to see how this plays off going forward with with them all right moving on let's go to the uh, NRA trial the CEO. Uh, the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, resigned a couple of days before a civil fraud trial was set to begin against his organization. Yeah, Andy. So this week, actually, the civil fraud trial against the National Rifle Association and senior management kicked off in New York City on the heels of its CEO of more than three decades, Wayne LaPierre, announcing his resignation for health reasons. Another NRA official, Joshua Powell, who was the chief of staff and director of general operations, reached a $100,000 settlement in the suit last Friday. Notwithstanding his resignation, LaPierre remains a defendant in the case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. The allegations are that NRA officials diverted millions of dollars away from the organization's charitable mission. And specifically as relates to LaPierre, that he exploited the NRA for himself and for his inner circle and that he used millions of dollars in donor money to pay for private jets, fancy meals, and family vacations. Other defendants in the case are former NRA treasurer and chief financial officer Woody Phillips and general counsel John Frazier, who is still um, an NRA employee and apparently the only defendant that is still with the NRA. Not surprisingly, the NRA has a different view, Rich, of what happened and chalks these allegations up to this being a case that has been crafted relying heavily on disgruntled former employees, terminated vendors, and others who had been involved with the NRA but are no longer affiliated with them. I mean, it seems like a classic case of just, you know, uh, an organization getting too big and the leader of an organization becoming too enamored with himself and his power. By all accounts, you know, the NRA in its heyday was one of the strongest lobbying groups uh, anywhere in, in America. So, you know, you could understand the temptation, perhaps, of uh, these fancy expenditures and, and, and you know, uh, expensive suits. Um, but to take, you know, member dues all in the name of protecting the Second Amendment and then line your own pockets, I mean, this, you know, this, this trial should proceed. I'm glad it's proceeding and let it be an example to other similar organizations and, and individuals. Um, Ross, what are your thoughts on this one? I mean, exactly that, right? Like this is, this is what happens. Like it's not, it's, it's, it's funny. It's not a shocking story to hear for these organizations, 
uh, for, you know, the NRI and many other organizations, this happens all the time. And people just, you know, oh, what's a meal here? What's vacation here? People don't aren't held accountable for it. And you know what? I'm with you. Let, let the trial go on and let them make an example. And for every other charitable organization where this happens, these ha- this type of stuff happens. There's a proposed class action lawsuit against the Tide Company or the Bakers of Tide saying it misleads customers about how many loads it can actually do. And it was kind of put in the spin cycle by a judge, wasn't it? So, Andy, our listeners probably remember uh, Spencer Sheehan, who we've talked about previously on our podcast. He's a consumer lawyer who has a reputation for filing what I'd like to call some more creative consumer class actions. So he's back in the news uh, with this particular lawsuit, proposed class action lawsuit um, this week after a federal judge in New York decided to toss it. Um, this time claiming this lawsuit was claiming, as you said, Annie, that Tide misleads consumers with labels on the detergent promising to wash 64 loads. So the plaintiff in this lawsuit claims that the Tide laundry detergent that she bought did not have enough detergent for 64 full-size loads and that actually there was only enough detergent for about 32 full-size loads. And there are um, allegations of violations of New York business law, state consumer fraud laws, breach of warranty, and unjust enrichment. So the judge disagreed in this case and said that the term load can be pretty ambiguous and that there was adequate notice on the label, particularly where the label mentions the word loads, that there was a little bit of a footnote to that. And if you look at the information on the back label, it says that 64 loads refers to 64 medium loads, which are measured by the lowest bar on the cap. The judge also went far enough to say that she questioned Sheehan's good faith. As we know, he typically files these types of consumer actions, and she noted that he often withdraws them after motions to dismiss get filed, and those get filed pretty pretty frequently, Rich, with Spencer's cases. Yeah, this is the vanilla vigilante. We've had him yes. <laughs> on the show many times. The guy who sues Pop-Tarts for strawberry Pop-Tarts not having enough strawberry for, uh, you know, Subway tuna not having enough tuna. This is guy. This guy makes his living on these ridiculously frivolous lawsuits. Uh, where, you know, um, Tony, guess who Guess who makes out the best? Uh, not the consumers that are allegedly the victims of this, uh, of this alleged fraud, but the class action lawyer, right? I mean, he makes uh, millions and millions of dollars on these lawsuits while the average consumer, all, all of us being, how many times have all of us received, you know, a check in the mail for two bucks because we're a member of a class uh, as a result of a successful class action lawsuit like this? So, it's nonsense. Who even knows what a load means? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a nonsensical lawsuit that was properly dismissed out there east where you are. Yeah, um, Rich, I feel like there's a Tide Pod joke here somewhere that uh, you could put together. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that this is this is pretty silly. I don't know who really actually follows the lines inside of that cup. Um, I'm going to be the one who just puts the most in to make sure everything is clean. Um, but that's me. Um, so, yeah, I th- think this should go away and interesting, but um, not really worth the uh, the court's time. All right. Our final topic, we'll talk about Eyes Without a Face, not just a great Billy Idol song from the 80s. 
But Hershey's was hit with a $5 million lawsuit over misleading advertising of their Halloween candy because the package showed a face. The candy didn't. So, Andy, I'm with you that that is an awesome Billy Idol song. It's definitely my favorite Billy Idol song of all, all time. Um, chalking this last story up to yet another ridiculous lawsuit, Hershey's was sued for $5 million in a Florida class action alleging violations of Florida's Deceptive and Unfair Trade Practices Act with allegations that they engaged in misleading advertising of Reese's Halloween candy because the packages show the chocolates with carved faces on them. But when you open the package, some of them did not have the the carved faces. So the lawsuit alleges that this happened across a number of different Packages, um, including the peanut butter and white pumpkins, the peanut butter and white ghosts, and peanut butter bats. The folks claim that there were many consumers, not just a couple, that would not have purchased the candy but for the fact that the label made them believe that the candies had face carvings on them and that the labels were materially misleading. Um, some people are so irked, Rich, that they actually took to YouTube and started making some rather hilarious videos talking about how terrible of a travesty this lack of carving of faces on chocolate and peanut butter was. And the lawsuit is asking for Hershey's to correct the packaging to reflect the actual contents of the product and also seeking $5 million in damages. Okay, so one of the one of the videos that you mentioned is by uh, an account called Shipop Recordings, and it's titled "Reese's Halloween Candy Lied to Me." Hey, newsflash, Ship Recordings, it's candy, it's chocolate and peanut butter. It's impossible to it's it's impossible for chocolate and peanut butter to lie. Newsflash, and um, as for those of you that are disappointed by there's no face, um, I don't know. I'm going to use a, again another arcane legal theory. It's candy. Please come on. I mean, um, if you're the, if 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 you've got this much time to worry about whether candy has faces on it as the package alleges, then go away, please. Um, Ross, you know, you and I have defended some frivolous lawsuits in the past. I know, um, but this one's a doozy. I just like it, this is such a it's a waste of the court's time. It really is. And like. Well, again, it is candy. Also, like, what difference is the face going to make to you? You're not going to eat it? Like, you bought it because you wanted chocolate and peanut butter. Get over it. Eat eat the thing. You're going to look at the face. Oh, God, it's not. doesn't taste the same because there's no eyes carved in it. I can't. And, it's, and, it's, and you know, Tony, if you're, if you're basing your, uh, you know, snack intake decision on whether it has a face, there's something seriously wrong with you anyway. You should probably seek psychological, you know, care right away. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think those pictures that we just showed um, would be good to just put on the label. As a marketing person, that's probably not going to draw a lot of interest. Um, So having the face on there makes it a little friendlier. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're really basing your decision off of what kind of design is on that candy bar, um, you should take, you know, Take some six, take some time to rethink your 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 process. All right, as we finish up the show, we like to learn well, a little bit about our guest. And I, uh, would just, I just wanted to ask something real quick, Rich. Do we know if the candy bar woman from Florida is related to the Tide Pod lady? Yeah, well, curiosity, highly suspicious. 
<laughs> Perhaps the vanilla vigilante has his hands in the uh, the peanut butter face one too. But we like to end each podcast with getting to know a little bit more about our guests by springing a question on them related to our grab bag. Today's question relates to what we just talked about: Reese's delicious. By all, I mean this is not brought to you by Reese's. We we welcome them as a sponsor, but a delicious candy. Uh, tell us your favorite because we heard in this story all the different types of Reese's candy, right? You have the ghost, the pumpkin. Let's talk about your favorite type of Reese's candy. Very specific question this time. Tony, what is your favorite version of the Reese's peanut butter candy? I am a classic cup, cups person. Um, Can't get enough of them. Um, You know, if that's in the Halloween grab bag, I'm definitely going for it. Full size. We don't need the little ones. Um, And yeah, those those are really uh, appealing to me. You know, the ridges make the cup just that much more appealing. The ridges are early with doing. Mm-hmm. Ross, favorite Reese's product? You know, only the pumpkins when it has a face on it. That's, that's it. That's a, that's I, thought a, I, saw, I thought I saw you in that class. Andy Major, yeah. you're a noted lover of uh, Halloween candy. What's your favorite Reese's product? Yeah, as a kid growing up, that was allergic to both chocolate and peanut butter and outgrowing yeah. it. I mean, it goes without saying the peanut butter cup, but you had to put them in the freezer. You had to take them out and eat them later. That's what you do. You put them in the freezer first, and then you can uh, enjoy your Reese's peanut butter cup. Man, that's tasty. Tina. Reese's M&M's. All right, so you're not talking about Reese's Pieces. You're actually talking about Reese's M&M's? I think I've had M&M's with Reese's in the middle. Is that would be like... It's something that's a knockoff. It it could be a knockoff, but... What type of bizarre underground M&M's are you getting? (laughs) That would be... I think what you just said is sort of like, say, your favorite flavor of Coke is Coke Pepsi. Hey! they're more I have some like- funky. I have some funky M and M's. I tend to get my hands on them. Like I just got for the holidays um, some M and M's that you know, like all of us trademark lawyers love these sorts of things. M um, and M's with Circle R and TM on them for the branding people out there. The hell's going on with those? You got some weird. <laughs> you got some weird mashup candy going on in your household. Uh, I'm going to keep it simple. I, I do like the little the Popham ones. You know, you just there are many versions of the cups or. They're unwrapped, which makes it so much easier. The wrapped ones, it's so much effort. You know, after like two of those, you're done, you're exhausted. But the unwrapped one was a major marketing tactic in the last 15 years because, you know, you open a bag and you can just get a whole handful of them. So, yeah, Reese's are delicious. I'm, I'm not shocked by that. For the man that's always on the go, he's got to ha- save that extra, you know, two seconds yeah. to unwrap his Reese's <laughs> buttercups. Yes. All right, that's it'll do it for a legal grab bag. Tony and Ross, thank you so much for your time. It's also going to do thank it for you. this edition of Legal Face Off. We would like to thank all of our guests. Professor Stephen D. Schwinn joined us earlier. So did Amanda Vinicky of WTTW TV and Rose and Rob Bronstein from Buckets Over Bullying. For Tina and for Rick, I'm Andy Mazur, and we'll join you next time on Legal Face Off here on WGN. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.